This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp, the return to the New Books Network's History Channel. I'm here today with uh, an instructor in African and African-American studies at Eastern Kentucky University, Joshua D. Farrington. We're going to be discussing today his uh, book, Black Republicans and the Transformation of the GOP, published by University of Pennsylvania Press. Welcome to the show, Professor Farrington. Hi, Ryan. Nice to be here. So let's get started. What prompted you to study Black Republicans during the 20th century? Also, by way of introduction, how did Black and Tan organizations in the Southeast, as well as federal patronage positions, advance African-American civil rights within the pre-1928 Republican Party? You know, so how I got to this topic was sort of in a roundabout way, uh, but I didn't start doing political history. I was working on my master's thesis on uh, the civil rights movement in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was specifically focused on the sit-ins in Louisville in 1961, and one of the things that I quickly found was almost to a person the leadership, the black leadership of the city, um, and especially those who were active in the sit-ins, were not just registered Republican, but they were vocal Republicans. And indeed, they tied much of their 1960 protests uh, towards the 1961 municipal elections. Um, and so in conjunction with the sit-ins in 1960, there was a massive voter registration drive in the city. Um, and they successfully registered um, almost 20,000 new black voters. Um, and then when 1960 came around, 1961 came around, um, the main objective of most activists in the city in 1961 was to convince those black, those new registered voters to kick out the democratic establishment of the city. Um, and when the municipal elections of 1961 came in November, indeed, Louisville had a new Republican mayor, um, a new Republican-controlled board of aldermen, um, and those Republicans were swept into power by black voters. Um, and so I think that story of Louisville fascinated, the, that political story of Louisville in 1960 and 1961 fascinated me. Um, it went against all sorts of narratives that I thought I knew about black voters, about the Republican Party in the 1960s, about Southern politics in the 1960s. Um, where you have 
Republican, white Republicans in Louisville who actively reach out to black voters, who support civil rights. Indeed, it's the Republican mayor of Louisville who will sign um, a new city ordinance that desegregates public accommodations. It's the first city to desegregate public accommodations in the South. Um, Kentucky's or Louisville's Republican congressman who was elected in 1962 is a vocal proponent of civil rights and will go on to support the Civil Rights Acts of 1964 and 1965. And then Kentucky's um, Republican senator, John Sherman Cooper, will also be an active um, supporter of of, uh, civil rights throughout the 1960s. Um, And that is in direct response to black voters, um, specifically in Louisville, who sort of provided this groundswell of support um, for um, Republicans in the state. Um, And, you know, so with that research, one of the things that um, I came to the conclusion on is that far too often historians have looked at presidential voting data Um, And that is how they tell the story of black partisanship, that they look at, all right, 1932 and 1936, look at the percentages of black voters who supported Franklin Roosevelt. Um, And indeed, if you look at Louisville in 1960, 70% of black voters in Louisville, Kentucky, vote for John F. Kennedy, including registered Republicans voting for John F. Kennedy. Um, And if you just look at that presidential year of 1960 and then the presidential year of 1964, you would assume that black voters in Louisville are staunchly Democratic. Um, But then when you take that lens to the local level, those same black voters who are voting for Lyndon Johnson and um, John F. Kennedy are the same ones who are supporting Republicans for Senate, congressional, and local uh, campaigns. Um, And so I started this project by saying, surely this isn't just Louisville. Um, Where else is this happening at? And I found that it's happening in a myriad of cities um, and states across the country where African-Americans are ticket splitting or um, are actively working in conjunction with Republican politicians um, on the local level. Uh, To answer your second question, which goes back in time uh, to, you asked about black black and tan Republican organizations uh, before 1928. Um, So in the South, the Republican Party, um, in the Deep South, the Republican Party is essentially dead after the 1890s and early 1900s. However, there does exist not Republican elected officials, but there does exist sort of a skeleton organization of Republicans. Um, And in terms of policy, they're not getting anything done. In terms of getting electoral support in their state, many of these states are states that actively uh, discriminate against Black voters. Um, They're not winning any elections. Um, But where African Americans who control or have a significant position um, in Republican parties in the South, where they do have some power is that the structure of the Republican National Committee is such that every single state, even Alabama, even in Mississippi, that has essentially no white Republicans, even in those states, every state is guaranteed two Republican National Committee persons. Um, And by the 1930s, every state has one committee man and one committee woman. Um, And in many Southern states, these are African-Americans. 
Um, so where they have power is not in electoral politics in their state, it's within their national party. Um, and there are many instances of uh, Republican presidential candidates who, in an effort to secure their ballots, are relying upon uh, African-American delegates from the South, um, especially a number of uh, Northern uh, politicians um, who are sort of dependent upon uh, African-Americans from the South to uh, get things, to get their nominations um, through. Um, in terms of pursuing a civil rights agenda, um, there they aren't accomplishing much in terms of actual policy. Um, they are voices of conscious, conscience within their party. Um, they are continually prodding their party to um, embrace things like anti-lynching legislation, which becomes sort of a staple in Republican National Committee platforms. But very rarely is that translated into actual legislation. Um, indeed, there will not be uh, federal anti-lynching legislation will never pass. Um, where I think they're most successful is ensuring uh, federal patronage for African-Americans. Um, so take, for instance, uh, the city of Memphis. The city of Memphis is um, controlled by Democrats um, in terms of elected politics, but the Republican Party of Memphis is controlled by Robert Church, um, an African-American uh, banker, um, and um, later on his associate, George W. Lee, um, and what you see in Memphis is the majority of postmen in Memphis are African-American. Um, the, there are other federal positions in New Orleans, um, in uh, different cities across the South that are also held by African-Americans, um, largely in response to those black and tan um, sort of leaders who, um, in return for their support of Republican nominees for president, are given um, some patronage power in the South. How and why did certain African Americans oppose the New Deal, even as they promoted civil rights? In addition, what role did debates over legislation by the Fair Employment Practices Commission play in generating divisions among Black and so-called lily-white Republicans? So by the 1930s, um, most working class African Americans had become part of the New Deal coalition. Um, however, a number of middle and upper class African Americans remained active in the Republican Party. Um, for one, the Republican Party sort of represents uh, black Republicans. Another um, part of their philosophy is that they you can date them sort of ideologically back to um, one of the most famous black Republicans, Booker T. Washington. And part of Booker T. Washington's philosophy was uh, this embrace of free enterprise and individualism and hard work ethic. Um, and many middle class and upper uh, class African-Americans who um, remained Republican uh, during the New Deal era, um, they held to these same values, which paralleled a lot of the sort of the rhetoric of the Republican Party. Also, the, these middle class and upper class African Americans, they are not dependent upon New Deal programs. Um, so they have, they're in a place where they are privileged or they don't have to, because they are not dependent upon the programs, they have room to criticize the programs. 
Um, and indeed, sort of one of the ironies is that um, oftentimes Black Republicans couched their opposition to the New Deal very differently than their white Republican counterparts. White Republicans during the New Deal era tend to criticize the New Deal um, as um, hurting um, you know, work ethic of creating a welfare state, of um, hurting businesses and the liberty of big business and businesses to um, sort of run the economy. Um, but Black Republicans, they oftentimes don't focus on those aspects of the New Deal. Most Black Republicans in their opposition, couch their opposition uh, to the New Deal on civil rights. Um, so, for example, Black Republicans would continually emphasize that the New Deal is the quintessential democratic program. Democrats are the party of segregation and discrimination, and they would point out examples, real examples, examples that um, are legitimate of discriminatory practices um, within New Deal agencies in um, unequal allotment of benefits, uh, in disparities in pay, um, in public works jobs between white workers and black workers. Um, so while both white Republicans and black Republicans are opposing the New Deal, black Republicans oftentimes are emphasizing um, how the New Deal itself perpetuates inequalities. And of course, they're speaking this from a privileged place where they are not dependent upon the New Deal relief. Um, and clearly, if you look at presidential voting um, data from the time, um, the vast majority of African-Americans support the New Deal um, and uh, under sort of the rationale that discriminatory help is better than no help at all. Um, by the 1940s, um, many Black Republicans begin to shift their focus uh, towards a more positive agenda rather than simply attacking the New Deal. By the 1940s, Black Republicans join um, forces with, of all people, socialist A. Philip Randolph um, in uh, supporting federal and state level fair employment practice uh, commissions. Um, Robert Church, the Black Republican leader from Memphis, um, befriends A. Philip Randolph, and they essentially go to Washington, uh, D.C. as lobbyists to lobby Congress for an FEPC. Uh, and FEPC um, complements sort of the Black Republican ideology, because um, what do most Black Republicans want in terms of their definition of civil rights? Um, equal opportunity. And what does fair employment guarantee equal opportunity, um, but it, in, it ensures equal opportunity in the workplace. And Black Republicans love work and love emphasizing sort of this work ethic. Um, and they believe that you don't need relief if you can just get businesses to open up their doors to African-Americans in a non-discriminatory way. If you can get rid of a disparities uh, in pay for white and black workers, if you could do that, um, a fair employment practice uh, committee guarantees equal employment. It also guarantees jobs and work for African-Americans. Um, and on the federal level, black Republicans aren't necessarily very successful in this, but on the state level, um, throughout the 1940s, there is some a level of success. Um, Eleven states pass some version of fair employment in the 1940s. 
um, eight of those 11 states are passed by um, states that are that have a Republican governor and a Republican legislature. Um, and all eight states um, have an active black Republican core that has been pushing for that and advocating uh, for that. So that brings us to 1952, when African-American Reverend Archibald Carey Jr. observed that the Democratic Party was the party of the Jim Crow South. How did such conceptions, alongside the President's Committee on Government Contracts, civil rights proponents, and fraternal organizations like the Elks, all contribute to a 1958 Black vote of 38% for Eisenhower? All right, so... um... First, Eisenhower, um, his sort of brand of politics is what he calls modern republicanism. Um, It's sort of a middle-of-the-road policy. And in being middle-of-the-road, it means he is not going to cater to conservatives in the party. Um, And while he takes sort of a gradual approach to civil rights, um, he does accept some civil rights. Um, Indeed, it is Eisenhower who will nominate Uh, Earl Warren and then Earl Warren to the Supreme Court and and Earl Warren's first decision with the Supreme Court. uh, He writes the decision of Brown v. Board of Education, which will desegregate uh, segregated schools. Um, It is also Eisenhower who in 1956 will support the first federal civil rights bill um, that uh, has been supported by a president since the Reconstruction era. Um, And it's Democrats in the Senate, uh, particularly James Eastland's uh, Judiciary Committee. James Eastland is a senator from Mississippi. It's particularly uh, Democrats in the Senate, Southern Democrats, who block that 1956 Civil Rights Act. Um, To go to Archibald Carey's quote, and this is a common theme that we see among Black Republicans throughout the 1950s, that that the Democratic Party is the party of the Jim Crow South. And even more, a vote for a Democrat anywhere is a vote for Jim Crow, um, is, an, is an extension of that Archibald Carey quote. And what many Black Republicans will argue in the 1950s um, is that, uh, say you are, Archibald Carey is from Chicago, um, uh, and one of the things that Archibald Carey will tell to Black audiences, um, either at his church or during campaign speeches, is that Um, If you vote for a Democrat senator from Illinois, he might be liberal on the issue of civil rights, and he might give lip service to civil rights. Um, But ultimately, the Democratic Party, particularly the Democratic National Committee, um, the Democratic Party is always going to be beholden to Southerners. They're always going to have to cater Uh, to Southerners. There's only going to be so far that Democrats will be willing to go because they don't want to alienate Southerners. Even more, and even more directly, is if Black voters in Chicago elect a Democrat to the Senate, what does that mean? He might support civil rights in the Senate, but it helps ensure that the Democrats continue to control the Senate. And if Democrats control the Senate, then following Senate rules the most senior Democrats are given the most important positions on committees. Um, So a vote for a Democrat in Illinois is a vote to ensure that James Eastland of Mississippi remains the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. So if you want to get a civil rights bill through the Judiciary Committee, 
don't vote for a Democrat anywhere, right? Um, that we have to break sort of the stranglehold of Democrats in the Senate. And the only way to do that is not to elect more Democrats, even favorable Democrats to civil rights, but to elect Republicans who will establish a new Republican majority in the Senate. And if Eisenhower just had that Republican majority in the Senate, then he could get his civil rights bills through um, and an uncompromised civil rights bill through as well. Uh, um, One thing that I would like to sort of add to your number, in 1956, Eisenhower does get 38% of the national black vote. Um, that is true. Uh, it also represents that number represents the highest percentage of uh, black voters on a national level who will support a Republican since the New Deal through today. Um, but if you look at black voters in the South, um, those Southern black voters, the majority of them, in some instances, upwards of 80 percent um, vote for Eisenhower. Um, so if you break that black vote down from a national level to a state level, um, it points to something that will be seen by liberal and moderate Republicans from the North, that there is potential in the South among black voters. Um, and this will be over the next decade or so a debate within the Republican Party on if we're going to appeal to the South, who are which Southerners are we going to appeal to? African-Americans or white conservatives. And Eastern establishment people like Henry Cabot Lodge of Massachusetts or Nelson Rockefeller of New York, they will continually look at the South and see potential in the South, not among white Southerners, but among African-American Southerners. Um, and thus, um, the that would justify sort of their continued support for civil rights legislation on a national level in order to gain those black voters and make headway in the South um, that way. Um, And indeed, Eisenhower will win a number of Southern states. um, And in every single one of those Southern states, it is black voters by and large who help secure that victory. Duly noted. Please briefly elucidate divisions within the 1950s Republican Party, especially the conflicts between that Eastern establishment that you referred to and the conservative movement. How did these divisions exacerbate a Republican electoral quandary for African-American voters and leaders? Yeah, So like I mentioned, the Eastern establishment uh, sees sort of the future of the Republican Party, um, at least in the South being dependent upon African-American voters. Um, They also see a big tent party in northern states and urban states that include uh, middle and upper class African-American leadership, um, ministers, um, and activists. Um, And thus the Eastern establishment, um, so Eastern establishment is anywhere from the governor of New York, Nelson Rockefeller, uh, Jacob Javits, a senator from New York, George Romney later on from Michigan, um, quintessential or a central part of their um, approach towards civil rights is they'll endorse fair employment, protection of voting rights, um, integration of public accommodations and schools, open housing, um, rent control, um, and other issues that would actively appeal to African-Americans. Flip side is that there is a conservative wing within the Republican Party. And throughout the 1950s, the conservative wing is becoming increasingly vocal. And they're also becoming increasingly frustrated 
uh, with the sort of direction that Eisenhower's modern republicanism is taking the party. Um, the, it's Barry Goldwater uh, in 1960 will refer to the Eisenhower years as a dime store New Deal, as sort of Republicans have become Democrats light. Um, so the, uh, this conservative wing, whether it be conservative Southerners or conservative ideologues like um, Barry Goldwater, they embrace sort of extreme versions of quote unquote liberty um, and business rights. Uh, so their sort of definition of liberty is not uh, anti-discrimination. Their, their sort of conception of liberty is it is the right of a business to discriminate however they feel is in the interests of their business. Um, and many of this, these new conservatives in the Republican Party, they won't outwardly come out against, um, they won't use the old sort of democratic, old school, redeemer Democrat sort of rhetoric um, uh, against African-Americans. It will be a nominally colorblind rhetoric. Um, it will be one that opposes civil rights um, as an infringement upon um, Southern citizens. It'll be one who, it'll be a rhetoric that um, opposes quote unquote forced integration. Uh, Goldwater especially will emphasize that he's not a racist and that he supports um, integration, but he, his support of integration is for voluntary integration. He's not going to make anyone integrate and it's not the role of government to integrate. Um, but of course, whether the rhetoric is based on an old school sort of overtly racist rhetoric or sort of this newfound sort of constitutionally um, libertarian form of rhetoric, they both ultimately have the same effect, and that's opposition to civil rights legislation. Um, conservatives also see a future in the Republican Party in the South, um, but their vision of Republican victories in the South is very different from the Eastern establishment. Um, they view the key to success in the South is courting disaffected white conservative Democrats. Um, and if they can win that, then they can break sort of that democratic stranglehold um, on the solid South. Um, and that would create a new, not just a new Republican majority, but a new conservative majority. Can you concisely explain the 1960 Nixon campaign shift from civil rights advocacy to a focus on white Southerners, as well as the significance of JFK Democratic running mate Lyndon Baines Johnson, and then the uh, that uh, MLK arrest? Yeah, I think it's important to note um, in 1960, Nixon Nixon is not the Nixon of 1968. Um, Nixon, still in 1960, Nixon has cozied up much closer to the Eastern establishment than he has to conservatives. Um, Goldwater is very frustrated with Nixon throughout the 1960 uh, campaign. Um, even as vice president, Nixon is the head of the President's Committee on Government Contracts, where he works to um, ensure that uh, companies that have government contracts are um, practicing fair employment. Um, Nixon is also friendly with Martin Luther King, um, and Martin Luther King um, in the late 1950s and early 1960s is an anathema to conservatives. He is the embodiment of a lot of things that conservatives hate, of sort of direct action protests, of quote-unquote forced integration. Um, King 
is invited by Nixon to Nixon's um, office in the Senate. Um, King and Nixon will have a private correspondence via letters. Um, King and Nixon will um, have photographs taken together um, cordially um, um, at the Independence Day ceremonies in Ghana. Um, Nixon is not going, Nixon doesn't shy away from King. Um, and King at this point in time is not a particularly popular figure among many white Americans. Um, and King himself will say favorable things about Nixon. King publicly will say that he has not been happy with the moderate approach of Dwight Eisenhower. But while he's not going to endorse Nixon, he thinks that Nixon will be a heck of a lot better than um, Eisenhower had been on the issue of civil rights. Um, Nixon also um, wanting to hold off on a potential run um, in the presidential primaries by Nelson Rockefeller. Um, Nixon um, will work with Rockefeller to create a platform that is favorable to Rockefeller, um, called by the media the Treaty of Fifth Avenue, um, denounced by Barry Goldwater as the, quote, Munich of the Republican Party. And one of the platforms of this um, treaty is a that Nixon agrees that he supports the, quote, objectives of the sit-in movement. Um, and the sit-in movements are not particularly popular among white Americans in the year 1960. And here Nixon is actively endorsing them. Um, however, like you said, there is, there is a switch by October in the Nixon campaign away from his previous record. Um, I think a lot of this stems from a complacency that Nixon has. Um, with black voters. I think that the Nixon campaign believes because of his strong record, because his record is even stronger than Eisenhower's, that of course Nixon is going to get at minimum the same level of support among black voters as Dwight Eisenhower did. Um, and that complacency fuels um, it fuels other aspects that you see throughout the 1960 campaign. He won't fund the minorities division of the Republican National Committee nearly to the same extent that Eisenhower did. Um, on the local level, Black Republicans are continually asking for financial support and literature from the Nixon campaign. Uh, most of those requests go unanswered. Uh, and then infamously, when uh, Martin Luther King is arrested in Atlanta in 1960, um, Richard Nixon's campaign, one of his uh, press aides, Herbert Klein, comes out and tells the press that Nixon has no comment on King's arrest. Um, and remember, King is someone who Nixon had previously had a positive relationship with, and African-Americans are well aware of Nixon's previous relationship with King. So not only is Nixon saying that he has no comment on the arrest and harsh sentence of Martin Luther King in Atlanta, but he's saying this about a friend or someone who he has called a friend in the past. Um, we're on the alternate side of the Kennedy administration, reluctantly, but ultimately um, works to ensure King's release from prison. Um, and especially among the black press, they receive a whole lot of praise um, for their forthright actions that help secure King's release, as opposed to the no comment Nixon. Um, and Nixon will not win uh, the same percentage of vote as Richard, as uh, Dwight Eisenhower. He'll win 
about 30% of the vote, which is no president since 1960 has won uh, upwards of 30% of the black vote. Um, so if you look at the long duration of 1932 to 2018, Nixon in 1960 does extremely well, um, but compared to 1956 and compared to his expectations, um, he does particularly poorly among African-American voters. And in one of the closest elections of the 20th century, um, his loss of those black voters proves pivotal um, in um, providing an explanation for one of, for his defeat. So despite the uh, 1960 electoral defeat, Nixon did still win almost half um, of the black middle class, as well as 46% of the total black vote in 11 Southern states. Four years later though, how did the Barry Goldwater campaign manage to eliminate black and tans from state delegations to the Republican National Convention in San Francisco? Uh, so the defeat of Nixon in 1960 provided the impetus for many conservatives who had been frustrated for a decade now with the direction of the Republican Party controlled by the Eastern establishment. Um, if the loss in 1960 provided a moment for conservatives to say, this is our time. And almost immediately in January 1961, conservatives begin operating under the assumption that they are going to lead a draft Goldwater movement that will successfully wrest control of the Republican Party away from the Eastern establishment and put it in the hands of conservatives. And if you recall, what I mentioned earlier in the interview is that most of the Eastern establishment sort of Republican presidential candidates, they are dependent upon Southern black and tan Republican organizations and delegates to ensure their victory. Um, so Nixon won all of the votes of Southern delegates um, who are African-American who were voting at the 1960 Republican National Convention. Um, so in order to, for this draft Goldwater movement to work, um, it, re, it will require a purge of African-Americans from, <clears throat> in order for um, the um, draft Goldwater movement to work, it will require a purge of African-American Republicans from leadership posts across the South. Um, so take, for example, Memphis. Memphis is the Memphis Republican Party of 1960. It's controlled by an African-American by the name of George W. Lee. In 1962, conservatives in Memphis um, who are devoted to the, to the draft Goldwater movement um, in the 1962 um, Republican primaries, um, they kick George W. Lee out of power and they establish a near Lily White Republican Party in Memphis. Um, in 1964, George W. Lee attempts to reassert his control of the uh, Republican Party of Memphis, and he's got thousands of black voters um, at his back, ready to wrest control of the party. However, since 1962, the party has been controlled by white Republicans. So what we see in 1964 is the Republican Party of Memphis deliberately um, and publicly um, and illegally um, works to ensure that ad those African-American Republicans aren't given any positions of power. Um, so, for example, um, they move black voting locations um, to segregated 
hotels and segregated businesses. Um, so when black Republicans go to vote in the 1964 primaries and they're one of the races that they're voting for is um, who is going to be in charge or who's going to have positions of power um, on the local Republican party. Um, when they go to their old polling place, it's closed. And then when they go to their new polling place, um, it is a segregated business that doesn't let them enter into the business. Um, and those and other practices um, are um, commonplace in the 1964 uh, primaries in Memphis. Uh, George W. Lee will eventually take his fight uh, to the Republican National Convention. Uh, William Scranton, who is a Republican from Pennsylvania who launches a bid against Goldwater, comes to his cause. Nelson Rockefeller pays for George W. Lee's lawyer. Um, there is a three-hour showdown at the Republican National Convention in uh, San Francisco, but eventually the Goldwater delegates from Memphis are seated. Um, you see similar things, perhaps not to the same extreme as in Memphis, but you see similar things occurring throughout the South of conservative white Republicans actively purging black Republicans from leadership positions within the party. You see it in Memphis, um, you see it um, in Alabama, um, you see it throughout sort of these traditionally black and tan regions that are now becoming lily white. Um, conservatives are also working to remove black Republicans, not just through structural procedures, but they're also working to remove African-Americans from Southern parties by creating an odious environment that no self-respecting African-American would want to be associated with. Um, so on the national level, um, a conservative uh, is becomes the chairman of the RNC, uh, William Miller. Uh, William Miller will eventually become uh, Goldwater's running mate in 1964. Uh, Miller funds uh, this uh, organization within the RNC called Operation Dixie. And Operation Dixie will provide funding for Southern Republican um, politicians to run for office. Exclusively, these are white conservatives. Um, and in one of the more uh, infamous examples of a candidate supported by Operation Dixie um, is um, William Workman of South Carolina, who is particularly odious in his um, language that he uses to describe African-Americans. Um, he is against allowing African-Americans to vote because of, quote, their intellectual inertia and moral laxity. Um, and he is um, the author of a number of racist pamphlets and short booklets. Um, and he will receive thousands of dollars from the National Committee. Um, so in addition to actively purging Black Republicans from positions of power within the Republican Party in the South, um, the National Committee is also creating an environment in the South that fosters and appeals to white racists. Um, and thus from those two, both a structural and sort of this, um, and through supporting um, known racists, um, it has the effect and purpose of getting rid of African-Americans from Southern Republican parties. And what does this ensure by 1964? It ensures that when delegates are selected through the Republican National Committee in 1964, the South 
is no longer going to support the Eastern establishment. The South is going to be the biggest supporter of Barry Goldwater. And the draft Goldwater movement is successful only because of the forced purging of African-Americans from Southern Republican organizations. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. How did black Republicans transition from the idea of voting Republican for a bipartisan civil rights movement to Jackie Robinson's idea of the Negro Republican Organization and then the National Negro Republican Assembly? And why did certain black Republicans still support Goldwater? So to answer your first question is um, at the Republican National Convention of 1964, black Republicans will form a new organization that would become known uh, by the fall as the National Negro Republican Assembly. Um, So these these are African-Americans who have remained Republican despite the nomination of Barry Goldwater. Um, I think what they would say and what they do say is that they refuse to leave the party because the party is theirs. They've been there longer than conservatives. They have had more positions of power than conservatives. And if they leave the party, if they abandon the Republican Party, then that will only ensure that conservatives and Barry Goldwater will come to dominate the party for the near future. Um, So just like African-American Democrats, African-American Republicans, by and large, in 1964, oppose Goldwater. However, their opposition to Goldwater is from within the party, and they vow to work inside the party and fight against this conservative movement to um, work with the Eastern establishment, to work with Republican moderates and liberals, um, and to amplify the voices of moderation and liberalism within the party um, to amplify and to continue to pressure liberal Republicans to not give in to this conservative groundswell. Um, They will continue to pressure the Rockefellers and Scrantons um, and other Republicans um, to maintain um, their levels of support for civil rights uh, despite this conservative surge and conservative moment in 1964. There were a few black Republicans who would endorse Goldwater in 1964. Um, However, the vast majority of black Republicans um, will oppose um, Goldwater. And indeed, of every single black delegate at the Republican National Convention will vote against Goldwater. And really to the person Every single influential black Republican on a local, state, or national level who I am aware of, who have positions of power in the party, to a person, they oppose Barry Goldwater. Um, I cannot think of a single prominent black Republican who endorsed Goldwater. I have not come across it um, in anything that I have found. Um, Tends to be the Goldwater, the African-Americans who support Goldwater, tend to be very marginal people. 
within the party. They have never held positions of power within the party. Um, they have never, um, they don't have a relationship with white politicians in the party. Uh, some of them are uh, members of the John, ironically, paradoxically, some the black Republicans um, who support Goldwater are themselves members of the John Birch Society. Um, probably the most famous uh, person to endorse Goldwater would be George Schuyler, uh, the former editor of the Pittsburgh Courier. Um, however, George Schuyler, I, I wouldn't call him a Republican. I would call him conservative. And indeed, when he runs for public office, he runs not as a conservative, but he runs as a member of the, oh, he runs not as a Republican, but he runs as a member of the conservative party and runs on the conservative ticket uh, in New York. Um, but outside of Schuyler, um, the vast majority of the small group who of African-Americans who endorse Goldwater are very marginal uh, individuals within the larger scope of black Republican activists. Please explain the post-1964 RNC attempt to reconcile with black Republicans, as well as RNC and NNRA endeavors for community outreach and Massachusetts Senator Edward Brooks' Open Society. Also, why did black candidates remain Republican, even when only 2% of black voters supported the Republican Party in 1968? So after 1964, there is an attempt by the establishment, by moderates and liberals, to reclaim their party. They will never fully reclaim it, um, but the rest of the 1960s and the early 1970s Republican Party you can characterize as a party that is torn between two separate visions, a conservative vision and a more moderate vision. And that moderate vision includes actively reaching out towards African-Americans and supporting um, civil rights legislation. Um, so after 1964, the Republican National Committee um, reestablishes the Minorities Division. The Minorities Division had been shut down in 1964. Uh, and it had been shut down because the man who was in charge of it, an African-American by the name of Grant Reynolds, Grant Reynolds resigned out of protest for Barry Goldwater. Um, that's reestablished in 1965. Um, Republican moderates like George Romney, Nelson Rockefeller, and William Scranton, they continue to work with African-Americans. Um, they continue to support causes of civil rights. Um, some of the first African-Americans appointed to state-level governor's cabinets are appointed by Republicans during this time um, in Michigan, in Ohio, in Pennsylvania, um, in New York. Um, George Romney will um, protest alongside the NAACP in an all-white Detroit suburb, and he'll be protesting uh, for open housing. Um, there is an effort by moderates and liberals to sort of restore the Republicans' image. Um, on the state level, oftentimes this is successful, and people like George Romney and Rockefeller um, and Scranton do secure um, relatively large numbers or percentages of Black voters, um, especially given the travesty of 1964 and the hurdles that that created. Um, and then probably most famously in 1966, um, the United States Senate gets its first popularly elected African-American uh, to their body. 
and that is Edward W. Brooke. He's also the first African-American uh, senator from the North. Um, Edward Brooke, Larry Brooke, of course, is a Republican, um, and um, his sort of um, alternative to the Great Society, what he calls the Open Society, is an emphasis on civil rights and continuing the civil rights revolution from a legislative uh, standpoint. Um, he will continually endorse measures of that relates to equal opportunity, um, rent control. Most famously in 1968, he's the um, author and co-sponsor of what would become the Civil Rights Act of 1968, or the open housing uh, bill uh, that's passed shortly after Martin Luther King's assassination. Um, he is the most vocal proponent of that uh, in the United States Senate. Um, why do, why do African-American Republicans continue to stay with the party um, despite the newfound presence of a large conservative wing in the party? The first is that they are drawn to these Eastern establishment figures. They are drawn to Nelson Rockefeller. They are drawn to George Romney. Um, and um, thus they are going to stay in the party and work with Romney or work with Rockefeller to reform the party or to kick conservatives out of the party and to create a more um, open big tent party uh, that reaches out to African-Americans. Um, Black Republicans are also in the 1960s, um, a frequent line of uh, that's central to their rhetoric that they emphasize is this idea of their, the two party system that they fear that if too many African-Americans vote Democrat, then Democrats will take the black vote for granted. Um, and thus, if African-American voters could split their tickets between the two parties, that would serve to pressure both parties, both Democrats and Republicans, to actively seek black voters. And as part of their actively seeking black voters, they would uh, endorse things that they otherwise might not endorse. Um, and then another reason is a number of black Republicans are also, like I said, members of the middle class and upper class. And um, a lot of their sort of um, fundamental ideas of free enterprise and hard work um, complement, continue to complement uh, things that the Republican Party um, is supporting. What was black bootstrap nationalism in con concomitant conceptions of welfare? And why didn't Nixonian black capitalism appeal to many black voters in the 1968 elections? In addition, how did black appointees to the Nixon administration advance the goals of the Office of Minority Business Enterprise and the Philadelphia Plan? Um, so by 1968, sort of the civil rights movement has shifted towards black power and nationalism. Um, in 1966, there's a revolution inside the Congress of Racial Equality, or CORE, um, and uh, sort of the mainstream liberal civil rights establishment, integrationist establishment is sort of removed from power inside CORE. Um, Floyd McKissick comes to power inside CORE. Um, and Floyd McKissick um, argues that, you know, his vision of the civil rights movement is very different from the integrationist nonviolent uh, phase that had preceded him. Um, he, is, he embraces 
the idea of self-defense. Um, he embraces not integration, um, but black control of black institutions, of black control of black communities. Um, he also has a Booker T. Washington Republican sensibility as it relates to capitalism and business. That if African Americans could just control their own businesses and control the economics of their communities um, and could work and give their dollars to black owned businesses, then this is a key to black advancement. Um, and thus the, the old integrationist model um, is fundamentally flawed because the integrationist model prioritizes opening up white institutions to African-Americans. Um, so sort of this bootstrap black nationalism combines sort of the black nationalism of the 1960s, of this emphasis of black control of black institutions. It combines it with Republican ideals of um, business and free enterprise and entrepreneurship. Um, and um, Nixon sort of catches on to this in 1968. Um, Nixon in 1968 will be the only presidential candidate and one of the few polit white politicians nationally who will embrace the term black power. Um, he refers to black capitalism as a project that would encourage, quote, black pride, black jobs, black opportunity, and black power. Um, his Democratic opponent, Hubert Humphrey, um, equates black power to white power and refuses to even uh, use the term. Um, so essentially what Nixon's brand and Nixon's version of black capitalism is, is that the government will play an active role in giving millions of dollars to black entrepreneurs to um, help fund uh, their startup businesses. Um, another element of bootstrap nationalism uh, that's embraced by Floyd McKissick is um, opposition to welfare. Um, there's an irony here that McKissick and by 1968, McKissick will endorse Richard Nixon. By 1970, McKissick will become himself a registered Republican. Um, he, the irony is he is, he is willing to accept millions of federal dollars for um, black businesses and what he would call black capitalism. At the same time, his rhetoric often parallels conservative Republicans in his opposition to welfare. Um, he argues he takes a very gendered interpretation of welfare, um, that welfare is demeaning towards men, uh, towards black men, um, that it is the role of black men to protect their families and thus his support for self-defense. And it's also the role of black men to provide. Um, and central to black men providing for their families is their ability to control their own economic sphere to own their own businesses. Um, sort of parallel to that also is his opposition to welfare is welfare effeminizes black men. Welfare castrates black men. Um, and welfare is another example of white men delegitimizing black men. Um, and so uh, core 
under McKissick and then under Roy Innes, uh, who succeeds McKissick, Gore doubles down on sort of this bootstrap black nationalism that combines sort of this nationalist idea of controlling your own community, combines that with Republican ideas of individualism and entrepreneurship um, and business. Um, clearly, the majority of African Americans don't uh, support this as seen in there or embrace the black capitalism as a cure-all um, as Nixon for as much as he supports black capitalism he takes a benign neglect on all other issues related to civil rights um, but on the issue of black capitalism that is sort of Nixon's defining sort of program for African Americans and ultimately the office of uh, minority business enterprise uh, which you mentioned will a lot hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to black businessmen uh, throughout the early 1970s. Despite closure of the RNC minorities division and the Nixonian policy of benign neglect, which you alluded to, how and why did third world Republicans, the Black Council for Republican Politics, the National Black Silent Majority Committee, and the Soul City, you can address one or all of them, how did they all, or one, project temporarily, how did these projects temporarily expand under Nixon? Well, since we were talking about McKissick, I'll, I'll just focus on uh, Soul City. So Soul City is uh, a utopian vision that McKissick has um, in that he envisions Soul City um, as this place in the South that is completely controlled. By African Americans, um, it will be a city where all the law enforcement is African American men, where the local government are African Americans, where all of the businesses are owned and operated by African Americans. And Soul City um, will provide almost this sort of you don't need civil rights legislation as long as you have places like Soul City where African-Americans can control their own destiny from that place apart from white society. Um, so eventually uh, McKissick will uh, purchase a plot of land in North Carolina, um, and which will form the foundation for Soul City. Um, and then he starts touting Soul City to white Republicans. Um, he needs money for this. Um, and he gets money from George H.W. Bush, who at this point in time is the head of the Republican National Committee. Um, he gets money, um, I think $14 million from the Republican governor of North Carolina. Um, and most prominently, he gets the endorsement of the Nixon administration. And George Romney, who is the head of the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development, uh, in Nixon's administration, Romney pledges $14 million uh, to Soul City, um, and um, Soul City will become um, not just a McKissick project, but it will become a Republican project uh, throughout the early 1970s. Um, I think that Soul City also points to the failures of black capitalism. Um, and that Soul City um, will eventually collapse, that Soul City um, is itself dependent upon federal dollars. And once the Watergate scandal hits, um, 
Nixon's administration is no longer going to be a forthright advocate for Soul City. And then once Gerald Ford comes along, Soul City uh, will uh, federal funding for Soul City will cease. But there is a moment in the night in the early 1970s, uh, particularly 1971, 1972, where there is this massive growth and optimism among black Republicans that Richard Nixon, he might not be good on civil rights, but in terms of giving cold, hard cash, he's better than past presidents. That um, Nixon is one president who is not afraid to write a big check uh, to black Republican endeavors. And thus you have a massive rise in the number of black Republican groups, um, in part because they're, they're receiving funding and they're receiving money uh, from uh, the Nixon administration. So can you, can you elaborate a bit further on how the Black Vote Division uh, wed African-American support for black capitalism, as well as two-party co- competition, uh, a la Jesse Jackson, with the 1972 Republican Party platform? And why did this coalition collapse by the mid-70s? Yeah, so in 1972, there um, there is this ethos that the Nixon administration and black Republicans are projecting that Nixon gives, um, in the words of Floyd McKissick, a quote, piece of the action that Nixon might not rhetorically be the same as uh, John F. Kennedy or Lyndon Johnson and taking vocal stances for civil rights and equality, but Nixon's going to write the check. Um, and you'll see a number of African American um, African Americans who will praise Nixon uh, in 1972 for his um, liberal allotment of federal dollars. Uh, Charles Edvers, uh, the brother of uh, slain Medgar Evers, um, by the early 1970s, he's the mayor of Fayette, Mississippi. Um, he gets hundreds of millions of dollars from the Nixon administration uh, for improvements to Fayette um, in Fayette's black community. Um, He'll endorse Richard Nixon, the mayor of Tuskegee, an African-American by the name of Johnny Ford, who's a Democrat, will also endorse Nixon in 72 uh, because Nixon uh, will again give tens of millions of dollars to improvements uh, for Tuskegee. Um, You'll also see a number of black celebrities uh, most famously, Sammy Davis Jr., who will hug Nixon on stage, but also James Brown and Jim Brown um, and other entertainers. Um, entertainers who also often have side businesses, like Jim Brown has his own uh, chain of restaurants um, who are benefiting from black capitalism. They will all embrace um, Nixon. There's also just in the sort of ethos of the early 1970s, there is a sense that black business is on the rise, that black businessmen are on the rise. Um, Sort of quintessential to this is the television show, The Jeffersons, um, where you have um, George Jefferson, who is moving on up uh, to his high-rise apartment in the sky. Um, And George Jefferson on the show is a self-made sort of wealthy man. He owns a chain of uh, dry cleaners. Um, and on the show, he's also a Republican. Um, and so this sort of, there's sort of this ethos that's sort of around the Nixon administration that business is on the rise uh, or black business is on the rise. You also see, as you pointed out, you see this with Jesse Jackson and his black expos, um, the black expo of 1972, 
features black businesses, um, a number of which have been funded by the Nixon administration. Um, and Jesse Jackson in 1972 will also be very friendly towards Richard Nixon. Um, he himself is a registered Democrat, but he will uh, vocally um, or not, he will privately um, tell the Nixon administration that he is for Nixon and he's not going to do anything uh, that um, will hurt Nixon's reelection effort. Um, again, despite sort of the high profile um, black supporters of Richard Nixon in 1972, he doesn't really improve with mainstream black voters. Um, the, it, most of them, while they may or may not be in favor of black capitalism programs um, on other issues of civil rights, um, Nixon um, is not a favorable person, particularly uh, with his rhetoric on uh, law and order um, and his frequent use of racially coded language in both 1968 and 1972. Um, he is not an appealing candidate. Um, to 80% of black voters in 1972. He does win 20% of black voters in 1972, which is more than Republicans since 1972 have won, um, but 20% is um, still a relatively small group. Um, it means 80% are voting for his opponent. Uh, so um, the arguments that Nixon gives hard, cold, hard cash really only appeals to those who are getting that hard, cold cash directly. What were the impulses for African-Americans to attend the 1980 Black Alternatives Conference in San Francisco? Further, how did Black conservatives, rather than Black liberal Republicans, come to dominate African-American GOP leadership during the Reagan years? And what happened to that idea of two-party competition? So, with the rise of Ronald Reagan in 1980... Uh, in the Republican Party. And it's not just the rise of Reagan, but Reagan brings with him an entire apparatus. Uh, the Republican National Convention or the Republican National Committee becomes devoted towards Reagan's brand of ideological conservative purity. Um, Republican politicians who run throughout the 1980s are running to the right, are calling themselves conservatives, um, are actively um, resisting um, labels of being moderate. Um, Republic, conservative is now something, a term to be embraced. And conservative philosophy and conservative ideology is, free, is increasingly being um, advocated um, as the way of the Republican Party. And increasingly, the two are becoming synonymous, uh, where Republican means conservative and conservative means Republican. Um, and one of the things that Reagan... And Reagan's administration does is Reagan will only appoint black conservatives. Um, so there will be dozens of highly qualified black Republicans who have been part of the party for two decades, who have been active within the Republican Party for decades. And when it comes towards federal jobs, they will be overlooked. And instead of appointing um, sort of these entrenched black Republicans who have been part of the party for decades and who are also moderates and who have also allied themselves with the old Eastern establishment, 
Um, Reagan will instead endorse relatively unknown and relatively young um, black conservatives. Um, these would be black Republicans who are willing to toe an ideologically pure line as it relates to conservatism. Uh, these would be play people like Clarence Thomas. Um, so the Black Alternatives Conference in San Francisco in 1980 is sort of this conference among black conservatives, um, many of whom are young, many of whom who have not been a part of the party for very long, um, but many of whom throughout the rest of the decade of the 1980s will become sort of the black Republicans who are promoted through party ranks. These would be people like uh, Thomas Sal, who will become an influential conservative voice uh, from the Hoover Institution, um, and Clarence Thomas and others. Um, this brand of black Republicans are different than ones that we've seen through the 70s and 60s who were active um, in holding leadership positions within the party and who were sort of the faces of black Republicanism. Um, so in the 1950s and early 1960s, most black Republican leaders would call themselves by the term liberal, um, would be active proponents of civil rights legislation, of affirmative action, um, and other overt um, civil rights laws. Um, and then by the late 1960s and early 1970s, you have sort of another group of black Republicans, the bootstrap black nationalists, who support creating independent black institutions that are in part funded by the federal government and who work with Republican politicians to ensure that hundreds of millions of dollars of government money is funneled towards black businesses. Um, what you see at the Black Alternatives Conference of 1980 is this new young generation of black conservatives who, number one, who tout themselves as being colorblind. And as part of their support of colorblind um, policies, they don't support any policy that acknowledges racial disparities and attempts to alleviate racial disparities. So most consequently is the black Republicans in Reagan's administration are active opponents of affirmative action. They see affirmative action as quote unquote reverse discrimination. Uh, and they take on the same rhetoric and ideological purity as Reagan and conservatives within Reagan's administration related towards uh, affirmative action. Um, they also apply this to black capitalism, that black capitalism um, is an unfair government program that unfairly favors black entrepreneurs. Um, so these black Republicans and the Reagan administration in general run away from black capitalism and run away from supporting uh, minority-owned businesses, um, both in terms of funding and both in terms of policy um, and rhetorical support. Um, so if you look at the Republican Party since 1980, since the Reagan revolution, there are def definitely moderate and even liberal Republicans who remain part of the Republican Party in the 1980s and the 1990s, and then to a lesser extent in the 2000s. Um, these would be people who continue to embrace the idea of two-party competition, who continue to um, embrace moderate civil rights reforms, who definitely embrace affirmative action. Um, but while they exist, they don't exist within the structure of the Republican Party. The Republican Party um, almost ensures um, and um, 
forces African-Americans, if you're going to be a part of the party structure, you have to toe an ideologically pure conservative line. Um, and uh, you'll frequently see um, examples of African-American Republicans who are promoted, but as soon as they begin to question the party's um, history and policy as it relates to race, they are just as quickly marginalized within the party. Um, so I'm thinking Michael Steele, for example. Michael Steele uh, would skyrocket uh, to become the chairman, the first African-American chairman of the Republican National Committee. But almost as soon as he starts acknowledging and apologizing for uh, the Republican Party's uh, use of the Southern strategy in the 1960s and begins black voting outreach, he's not only removed from power, but he becomes uh, an obscure figure within the party, or at least a marginal figure uh, within the party who has no real power um, or a policy-making um, potential. Um, you, you saw that. We also saw this uh, fairly recently with Mia Love, uh, the congresswoman uh, from Utah, who became a Republican sensation when she's elected, um, and as soon as she starts criticizing. Uh, Donald Trump um, for his racially charged rhetoric, she's abandoned by the party. Um, I think that there continues to exist African Americans who are, A, definitely um, discouraged by the tepidness of the Democratic Party and who would vote for an alternative if there was an alternative. Um, but um, within the structures of the Republican Party, moderate and definitely liberal African-Americans, there's no space for them. Um, there's only space for ideologically pure conservatives uh, within um, the Republican apparatus as it exists today. Well, I have a final uh, question for you. What are you working on? Is there anything, any new projects you're thinking about? Anything you're uh, currently um, engaged in? Yeah, I'm, I'm working on a biography of Floyd McKissick. Uh, McKissick um, is clearly an influential person as it relates to the civil rights movement. He was part of the original Freedom Rides of the 1940s. Um, he would become the um, head of CORE in the 1960s. Um, but I don't think he's, he's received the scholarly attention uh, deserved. And I think uh, in large part, it's because he is kind of an anomaly. And, uh, and uh, historians, we haven't known how to treat him um, because uh, um, he's a black nationalist, but he's a black nationalist Republican. Um, and those things don't uh, jive uh, with traditional interpretations of uh, black power and civil rights. And Indeed, McKissick himself, uh, his ideology changes so much over time um, that um, he's a difficult person to get a grasp on. Um, but between uh, sort of his uh, evolution as an integrationist uh, to a nationalist, um, and then sort of his path towards the Republican Party, and then path away from the Republican Party by the late 1970s. Um, I think his life and his story tells us a lot of important things, not just about an important person, uh, but a lot of important things about uh, changes, um, both in American politics and in African-American activism uh, from the 1940s through the 1980s. 
Well, I hope you remember the New Books Network for that uh, upcoming project. Oh, definitely. Well, thank you for uh, being on the show today, uh, Professor Farrington. On behalf of Professor Farrington, um, this is Ryan Tripp. The book is Black Republicans and the Transformation of the GOP, published by uh, Penn Press. Again, on behalf of Professor Farrington and the New Books Network, this is Ryan Tripp. Please tune in next time.